0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. This is our final message in Psalm 23, and we entitled this series, Sheepish Needs, because it describes those needs that we all have that we're kind of sheepish about. We don't like to admit them. And yet when we do admit them, we find that God holds the antidote to each one. One of our needs is worry. The antidote is in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The second is busyness. The antidote is in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The third is emotional hurts. And God's antidote is in verse 3. He restores my soul. The fourth is indecision, and God's antidote is at the end of verse 3. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The fifth is dark valleys, and God's antidote is in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. And the sixth need is relational hurts. And God's antidote is in verse 5. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then the seventh and the final sheepish need is fear of the future. Now, how many of you are interested in the future? Well, I assume that all of you are because you're going to live the rest of your lives there. But you know, most people are not that optimistic about the future. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons we see so many young people today pulling the trigger on guns because we have no hope to offer them. There seems to be no future. People don't talk about the future as if it's bright. Woody Allen put it into perspective this way. He said, more than any time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray that we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Whichever way you choose, he says, tongue in cheek, the future is fearful And hopeless. Peter McWilliams made this admission about the future. He said, I'm a confirmed megaholic. I don't just see a glass that's half full and call it half empty. I see a glass that's completely full and worry that someone's going to tip it over. When you look at the future, what do you see? Well, I think most of us have to admit that we look at the future with a certain degree of fear, a certain degree of apprehension, a certain degree of trepidation. You know why that is? Because we don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of us don't enjoy today because we're so worried about tomorrow. What's the antidote for fear of the future? You say, well, if George W. Bush would just take out Saddam Hussein, I could relax a little bit. Or as long as I keep listening to Alan Greenspan, I'll know what's going to happen. Or maybe I should call the psychic network. No. The antidote is found in Psalm 23 and verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now notice, David describes two phases of our future. All the days of our life and forever. Now that pretty well covers it, doesn't it? God's promises are not for most days for a while. They are for all days forever. You see, we do not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And God gives us two promises in this verse that erase any fear in the future. He gives us a promise for phase one of our future, the rest of our lives on earth, and then he gives us a promise for phase two of our future, which is eternity. And I want us to focus on those two promises this morning. The first has to do with all the days of my life. Notice the first part of verse 6. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. While I am following the shepherd in the paths of righteousness into the future, David says, something is following me. Two things in particular. He says, goodness and loving kindness or mercy, The first thing that is following me is goodness. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that only good things will happen to me? No. You don't have to live very long to figure out that bad things sometimes happen to good people. So what does David mean when he says goodness will follow me all the days of my life? Well, he means that in whatever happens to me, goodness is going to show up. In whatever happens in my life, goodness will come out of it. Joseph was, sho- was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Was that a good thing? No. But later, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good even the evil that others plot against us God brings good into Paul was falsely accused and put in prison was that good? no but you know what came out of it? Ephesians Philippians Colossians 2nd Timothy Philemon many of the writings of the New Testament were birthed in a prison cell you see, there are two things you need to understand. First of all, we have to understand that the good in a situation is not always obvious to us. We don't always see God's goodness in the midst of a difficulty. In fact, even Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, it's often not till afterwards that we look back and we see how God's goodness has followed us. We see how it shows up later. And then secondly, we have to understand that we don't get to define what is good. We don't get to define what is good. If I asked you, what is good for you, you would probably say, well, it would be good for me to win the lottery so I could have a mansion on the hill and I could have a yacht and a Rolls Royce and a carefree life. But see, God has a different definition of what is good for you. If you're a parent, you have a definition of what is good for your children. It's to go to school and eat their broccoli. Your children have another definition of what is good for them. It's stay home and eat junk food. So let me ask you, from God's perspective, what is good for you? Well, you know, I paged through my Bible this week, and I found three things that God says are good for you. Number one is becoming more like Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 for just a moment. Romans 8, 28 Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now notice, this is not a promise for everyone. This is a promise for those who love God. These are, this is a promise for those who are called according to His purpose. And I want you to also notice that he doesn't say here that all things will be good. He says all things work together for good. God even takes the bad things and makes them work together for good, just like He did with Joseph. Now, what is the good that all things are working together to accomplish? Well, He tells us in the next verse, verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of of his son, You see, the good in verse 28 is now spelled out in verse 29, and it is to be conformed to the image of His Son. Your greatest good is to become like Jesus. And God is working all things in your life to accomplish that. Your spouse, your kids your in-laws, your outlaws, your good days, your bad days. God is bringing all those together to accomplish this purpose, to make you more like His Son. In fact, the Bible indicates that difficult times actually are more good for you than good times. Difficult times are better for you than easy times. That's why James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, in God's economy, trials, pressure situations, resistance, trials lead to endurance, and endurance leads to completion. You see, you will never, never reach completion, you will never reach maturity as a Christian unless you go through those difficult times. Coach Billings showed me around the football facilities at the university this week. And down in the basement, there's a big weight room. Now, I looked at that weight room and I thought, this is a room full of potential pain. I mean, it was intimidating. They had some dumbbells down there that I would have to bench press. But you know, he sees that as a wonderful place because he knows that that room is a room that develops football players. Players have to go through that room to make progress because as they push against the resistance of those weights They build endurance and completion. As they push against the resistance of those weights, they become more like Marshall Falk and more like uh, whoever else. You only think of one football player. Warren Sapp. Actually, I look more like Warren Sapp. But... You see, God is doing that same thing to us spiritually. He brings things into our life that are a resistance to us and as we have to push against that resistance, it builds endurance in our faith and brings us to completion in Christ. And His goal is that we become more like the Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter uses the illustration of gold going through the fire. Gold was taken and put in a crucible and put over the fire. And as it melted, the gold was heavy and so it would sink to the bottom and the dross was lighter and it would come to the top. And the goldsmith would be able to scrape the impurities off the gold. And so as it went through the fire, it became more pure. And Peter says the same thing happens to us. When we go through the fiery trials of life it has the result of changing us and making us pure and making us more like the Lord Jesus. Becky Massengale gave me this story. I don't know who wrote it, but I think we can all identify with it. Not too long ago, I had one of those days. I was feeling pressure from a writing deadline. I had company arriving in a couple of days and the toilet was clogged. I went to the bank and the trainee teller processing my deposit had to start over three times. I swung by the supermarket to pick up a few things and the lines were serpentine. By the time I got home, I was frazzled and sweaty and in a hurry to get something on the table for dinner. Deciding on Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, I grabbed the can opener, cranked open the can, then remembered I had forgotten to buy milk at the store. Nixed the soup idea. Setting the can aside, I went to plan B, which was leftover baked beans. I grabbed a Tupperware container from the fridge, popped the seal, took a look, and groaned. My husband isn't a picky eater, but even he won't eat baked beans that look like caterpillars. Really frustrated now, I decided on a menu that promised to be as foolproof as it was nutrition free hot dogs and potato chips. Retrieving a brand new bag of chips from the cupboard, I grabbed the cellophane and gave a hearty pull. The bag didn't open. I tried again, nothing happened. So I took a deep breath, doubled my muscle, and gave the bag a hearty wrestle. With a loud pop, the cellophane suddenly gave way, ripping wide from top to bottom. Chips flew sky high. I was left holding the bag, and it was empty. It was the final straw. I let out a blood-curdling scream, I can't take it anymore. My husband heard my unorthodox cry for help, and within minutes he was standing at the doorway of the kitchen where he surveyed the damage. An open can of soup, melting groceries, moldy baked beans, and one quivering wife standing ankle-deep in potato chips. My husband did the most helpful thing he could think of at the moment. He took a flying leap, landing flat-footed in the pile of chips. And then he began to stomp and dance and twirl, grinding those chips into my linoleum in the process. I stared. I fumed. But pretty soon I was working to stifle a smile. Eventually I had to laugh, and finally I decided to join him. I too took a leap onto the chips, and then I danced, Now, I'll be the first to admit that my husband's response wasn't the one I was looking for, but the the truth is it was exactly what I needed. I didn't need a cleanup crew as much as I needed an attitude adjustment. And the laughter from that rather funky moment provided just that. So now I have a question for you, and it's simply this. Has God ever stomped on your chips? I know that in my life there have been plenty of times when I've gotten myself into frustrating situations and I've cried out for help all the while hoping God would show up with a celestial broom and clean up the mess. What often happens instead is that God dances on my chips, answering my prayer in a completely different manner than I had expected, but in the manner that is best for me after all. Sometimes I can see right away that God's response was the best one. Sometimes I have to wait weeks or months before I begin to understand how and why God answered a particular prayer the way He did. There are even some situations that years later I'm still trying to understand. I figure God will fill me in sooner or later, either this side of heaven or beyond. Do I trust Him? Even when he's answering my prayers in a way that is completely different from my expectations? Even when he's dancing and stomping instead of sweeping and mopping? Can I embrace what he's offering? Can I let his joy adjust my attitude? Am I going to stand on the sidelines and sulk? Or am I willing to learn the steps of the dance he's dancing with my needs in mind? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I sulk. Sometimes I dance. I'm doing more of working on the latter than the former. I guess the older I get, the more I realize that he really does know what he's doing. He loves me and I can trust him even when the chips are down. Sometimes God stomps on your chips. Because goodness is following. And the greatest goodness for you is to be changed into the image of the Lord Jesus. But then there's a second thing I found that God calls good. And that is nearness to Him. You know, there's a great lesson in Psalm 73, and I just want you to turn over there for a moment. Psalm 73. verse 1 surely God is good now I think we can identify with the psalm writer because he's got his theology right he says God is good but verse 2 As for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat, they are not in trouble as other men. Psalm writer says, my theology is right, God is good, but when it comes to me, God's not good. Because I look around and I see people who are wicked doing a lot better than I am. You ever say that? You ever say, here I am serving the Lord and woe is me because these other godless people seem to be doing better than I am? Well, the psalm writer said that and he learned some important lessons and he wants to share them with us. And the lesson he learns is this, if you're going to measure the good life you better have the right measuring stick. And he tells us two things we need to take into account. Number one is the destination. Look at verse 16. He says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. I was trying to evaluate who was going to win the game in the fifth inning. And I came into the sanctuary of God, and God let me see their end. And what is their end? Well, he tells us in verse 18, they will be cast down to destruction. You can't evaluate whether someone is living the good life unless you can evaluate what is their destination. And if their destination is destruction, that's not the good life. And then there's a second factor you have to take into account, and that is the definition of good. Look at the last verse of the psalm. Verse 28, he says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Now get that. The definition of good is not a life with no pain, no trouble, no worries. The definition of good is is a life that no matter what I go through, I am near to God. If you've got two paths, one is a path of pain and one is a path of comfort, but the path of pain leads you closer to God, which path is better? Well, the psalm writer says, the nearness of God is my good. And when he gets this new measuring stick, then he goes back and looks at life again. And if you go back to what he says in verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He looks around and he says, The evil man has his hand full of things. I have my hand full in the hand of God. The evil man is heading toward destruction. I am heading toward glory. Now you tell me, who's living the good life? You see, if you will get to the point where you can say with the psalm writer what he says in verses 25 and 26. In fact, I would urge you to underline these verses and memorize them. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides Thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you can say, God is all I want in heaven and I don't want anything else on earth, He is my strength on earth and He will be my inheritance forever. When you are able to say that, then you can say, I am living the good life. Because goodness is defined by how near I am to the Lord. And then there's a third thing that God considers good for you, and that's unity with other believers. Psalm 133 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. In unity. Life is good when we are dwelling together in unity. You see, God not only wants to bring you closer to Himself, He wants to bring us closer to each other. Because unity with believers is our greatest good. So what does God consider to be good? Three things. He wants to change you to become more like Jesus... He wants to draw you closer to Himself. And He wants to draw you closer to other believers. And so as you go through the circumstances of life, if they are allowing you to be changed and conformed into the image of Christ, if they are causing you to cry out and say, Lord, You're all I desire in all the earth, and if they are drawing you closer to other believers, then goodness is following you. And then there's a second thing he says is following us, and that is mercy or loving kindness. Now, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Aren't you glad God doesn't give you what you deserve? Aren't you glad this verse doesn't say justice will follow me all the days of my life? Because you know in the future, you're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble. And so you not only need God's goodness, you need God's mercy. You know, when bad things happen to us, we sometimes say, well, I wonder if God is getting even with me. Well, let me tell you something. If you're a Christian... God has already gotten even with you. He got even with you at the cross. In fact, you came out ahead because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says He took your sin and He gave you His righteousness. You say, yeah, but in the future, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail God. Well, you don't have to worry about that because you definitely are. And that's why this promise is so great, because it says His mercy will follow you all the days of your life. I love Psalm 103.11. It says, God's mercy is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's God's mercy. And His mercy follows you. And if you notice Psalm 23, it doesn't say goodness and mercy uh, follow us some of the days of our lives. It says they follow us all the days of our lives. Now that word follow is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean they're kind of meandering along, trying to catch up. Same, Same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 83, 15 to describe how God pursues the enemies of Israel. And that's the way it's translated there, to pursue So just as sure as God's judgments pursue the wicked, God's goodness and mercy pursue His children. Now what I know about cattle drives, I learned from watching Rowdy Yates on Rawhide growing up. But there's a lot of difference between cattle and sheep. You drive cattle. You you get behind them or beside them and you drive them. But with sheep... You lead them. The shepherd gets out in front and he leads and the sheep follow. But oftentimes a shepherd would have a faithful sheepdog or two that would come at the rear of the flock and keep them in line. Goodness and mercy are divine sheepdogs. As we are following the Good Shepherd, they are following behind us, kind of snipping at our tail and, and bringing us goodness and mercy in life. You see, when we look into the future, our problem is that oftentimes we say, well, just suppose this happens. Or just suppose that happens. That's why I love this psalm. Because verse 6 doesn't say, suppose goodness and mercy shall follow you. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of my life. You see, I don't go into the future with a question mark. I walk into the future with an exclamation point. God has a promise for phase one of my future all the days of my life. He also has a promise for phase two of my future, and that is eternity. Notice the end of verse six of Psalm 23. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. What's what's God's promise for eternity? He says, I will dwell. That word means to settle down, to be at home. Phase one is following. Phase two of our future is dwelling. What a promise. Psalm 84.10 says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalm writer says, I'd be happy just to stand in the doorway of the house of God. Well, guess what God promises for you? You're not going to have to stand in the doorway. You are going to dwell in the house of God. You say, well, what is the house of God? Well, this this term is used in the Old Testament oftentimes of the temple, but when it's used in this context of something in the future, it's talking about God's eternal dwelling place. Jesus used this same phrase in John chapter 14. And I want you to look over there for just a quick moment. John chapter 14. Familiar verses. Verse 2. Jesus said, "...in My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, unfortunately, the King James translates this mansions. And that's not a very good translation. Because this Greek word is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's in the same chapter. It's in verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode, there's the word, our home, our dwelling place with Him. You see, Jesus is not talking here about mansions. We get the idea we're all going to have our own mansion in heaven and, you know, yours is going to be brick and mine's going to be vinyl siding. That's not what He's talking about here. He's talking about the Father's house. And in the Father's house are many dwelling places. See, He's not talking about the place as much here as he's talking about who's going to be there. And that's why Jesus says in verse 3, where I am, there you will be also. See, that's the issue. We're going to be where he is. We are going to dwell with him. God is going to share his home with us. Now, it's going to be nice because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare it and he's been gone 2,000 years. So he's working on something really special. But that's not the issue. The issue is that we are going to abide with God in His house. That's amazing promise. This word is implied one other place. When Jesus was on the cross, He looked at John and He told John, take care of my mother. And here's what it says in John 19, 27. It says, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own God has made that same promise to you and me. We're going to follow Him throughout all the days of our life, and then He's going to take us into His own house forever. You say, "Well, that's quite a promise." But can I really put aside all my fear and really trust in that? Or is there any way I can lose out on that? Well, let me look. Have you look at one other passage? Look at John chapter ten. John chapter 10, this is the passage where Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. And notice what he says in verse 27 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Now, notice the word give. Eternal life is a gift. What did it cost the Lord Jesus? Well, he told us back in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life so that you might have eternal life. And because it's his gift to you and because it cost him so much, he wants to make sure that he erases all your fear of the future. So notice what he says in verse 28. And they shall never perish. Perish. How long is never? That's an interesting word. There are, there are two Greek words for no, for never. One is, this is easy. One is ooh, the other is may. Now you know two Greek words. Ooh, may. They're both negatives. Jesus used both of them here. Jesus said, you shall ooh, may, perish. Double Negative. What he's saying is you shall never, never perish. It's emphatic because he wants to make it clear to us. And then he adds something to that in verse 28 to reinforce it. He says, And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, I want you to notice something rather amazing. At, At the beginning of verse... 29, it tells us that not only has Jesus given you the gift of eternal life, but God the Father has given you as a gift to the Lord Jesus. Can you fathom that? You are a gift that the Father has given to the Son. And he thinks you're so special that he says he is holding you in his hand. And the Father is still holding you in His hand. You're a sheep. He's holding you in His hand. The Father is also holding you in His hand. And Jesus says, you're so sure, you're so secure that no one will snatch you out of My hand. And then He reinforces that and says, no one is even able to snatch you out of My Father's hand. What a shepherd. What a promise. What a future. You know, the little girl was right when she quoted Psalm 23 by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. He is all I want. He's beneath me in the green pastures. He's beside me in the still waters. He's with me in the valleys. He's around me in the presence of my enemies. He's upon me, anointing my head with oil. He's behind me, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And he's beyond me, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What more could you want? But as we close out this great psalm, I want to ask you this morning, have you given your past, present, and future over to him? Have you, have you given your life to the Good Shepherd who gave His life for you? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Can the Good Shepherd call you My sheep? If not, why not come to Him this morning? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and they're going to lead us in a chorus. And I just want to remind you that, you know, if you can say the first line of Psalm 23 then you can say the last line. If you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, then you can say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing along with the praise group the song, Come As You Are. And as they're singing, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you've never come to the good shepherd, that you come as you are and he'll receive you today. There may be others here who want to join this fellowship, others that need to come for various reasons. You come as we sing together.